Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. I think uh, as Andre was praying a moment ago, a Sunday like this is something like going to the dentist. You know, you have a toothache, and even though you dread going to the dentist, if you're anything like me, you put off going to the dentist for a long time. And then eventually when you go, you're dreading it, and you have sweaty hands, and you sit in the dentist's chair, and you know, when he gets his drill out, your toes are curling up in your shoes, and he say, are you okay? Yeah. Okay, and your whole body's stiff like a log, you know what I mean? But at the, in the end, you know, when all of that pain is over, you're grateful you went because now your, your tooth is fixed. And church discipline tends to be one of those kinds of topics, doesn't it? It's one of those things that's very, it's not pleasant to speak about, but at the same time, it's one of the most joyful mechanisms we have in the church in order to keep the family happy. In order to maintain harmony in the church, this is God's design for maintaining good relationships in the church. And it's also God's design for bringing people back who are wandering into dangerous places. And sometimes it happens in your own life, I'm sure, that when somebody comes to confront you over something, you don't like it. And maybe you say to yourself, I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. You know, that person that was very rude, that person, oh, what's none of their business what I'm doing? I'm not hurting anybody. And you don't talk to that person anymore. And isn't it wonderful that church discipline is that mechanism by which God uh, gently at first and then more and more firmly calls you back and calls you back and calls you back into a relationship with that person where there's harmony, a God-glorifying relationship. So today... Really, I've, I've got a lot to say. What I'm intending for this sermon to be one of those resources we can have in the church that you can listen to the recording, you can read the notes that I've put here. If you're ever in a situation where there's problems between you and somebody else in the church, you can go back to the sermon. You can go back to these notes and you can find yourself on the map and you can say, okay, that's where I am. This is where I need to go. This is where I went wrong. You can find out where you went wrong and... and See your course of action right by the grace of God. If you know somebody else in the church who's going astray, who's going into dangerous places, this will be a map to help you, to help that person. If you wonder if there's somebody who's living around you, who's irritating you, you don't like the way they dress, you don't like the way they speak, you don't like the way they chew their food, you don't like the sounds they make when they breathe, you don't like the way they walk, I mean, etc., etc., then this will be a map for you so you can say, should I confront this person? You know, should I go to them and say, I'm sick and tired of the way you, this noisy way you eat at the table. It makes me feel sick. You know, is that, 
Is that the right thing to do? Or should I just overlook that and deal with it inside of me? So hopefully this is going to be a map that you can use in the future. You can download the sermon or get it off the WhatsApp group. And you can, I'll put the notes on the WhatsApp group as well. So you can always have this as a resource, as a map to know where to go. So obviously I'm going to say a lot of things today. So if a lot of it, if a lot of it misses you, come back to it, please. Use this recording and use the notes as a map to help you to know what to do and where to go. So I'm going to start with this whole topic of church discipline by reading one text, just a few verses from Matthew uh, chapter 18. I haven't put it on the presentation, but I'm just going to read this text. We're going to dip into this text all the way along, and we're going to dip into many other texts. But Jesus says in Matthew 18 verse 15, He says, if your brother sins against you, go. It didn't say, if your brother sins against you, WhatsApp him or email him. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if, he's not, if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to, even to, uh, to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. And as you can see, those last few words have very, 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 very often been taken out of context. They've been pulled out of their context and used in very funny ways. So today I'm just going to try and put all of this in context for you. So, talking about church discipline, there are three purposes. Why does God want a church to exercise church discipline? There's three purposes for church discipline. And the first purpose for church discipline is restoration and reconciliation of a believer who's going astray. The main point of, recon- the main point of discipline, if somebody in the church comes to you and confronts you regarding a sin then you must understand that their first, the first priority here is to pull you back, is to pull you back, is to pull you back. If the church is like sheep in a sheep pen or in a fold, and the shepherd is sleeping at the door, you know how that happens in ancient culture. They would have a, a round wall with one door opening. There's no door in it. It's just an opening. And the shepherd would lead his sheep into the fold, and then the shepherd would sleep in the doorway. So if a wolf came, the shepherd was the first one to confront the wolf. Now imagine you have a sheep in that sheep pen, the shepherd is there, and the one sheep says to him, you know what shepherd, I'm, I'm done with this fold business, I want to be out there, I want to sleep out in the meadow. But the shepherd knows there's wolves out there, so he says to the sheep, no, I, I don't want you to sleep out there. And the sheep says, no, I insist, I'm going to sleep outside. And the shepherd says, no, 
I insist you're not going to sleep outside. What is the shepherd doing? Is the shepherd being unreasonable? Of course not. The shepherd is, is hoping to keep that sheep in a safe place. So a sheep that goes outside and he says, I don't see any danger here. He's in the greatest danger, isn't he? So the purpose of church discipline is restoration, it's reconciliation, is to bring a sheep back inside the fold who wants to be outside in a dangerous place. It's not an unreasonable thing. Often when church discipline is exercised in a church, the church, you know, some members in the church become unhappy. They think the, the elders in this church are, you know, are bullying the sheep. It's like the sheep wandering around outside the fold and the shepherd is saying, come back, come back. And the rest of the sheep, look at how that shepherd's bullying the sheep. Look at him. He just wants to be free and, and, the, and the shepherd is bullying that sheep to come back. It, it's a strange thing. When we exercise church discipline, how automatically some people become upset about that. But it's about, if we think about church discipline as something to bring you back, it's a wonderful thing. Why do we do that? Because God disciplines those he loves. So to exercise church discipline is a God-like thing. If you see your elders in the church having the courage to exercise church discipline, they're doing a God-like thing. We think of what Hebrews 12, 6 says. It says, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. It is a God-like thing. Revelation 3, 19, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who has been a man, who is speaking to John about all of the churches, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So to discipline, to exercise or to start church discipline is an act of love. If I come and confront you of a sin, it's because I love you. It's because I don't want you to be that sheep who's wandering out in a dangerous place. And I say, hey, come back. And you just get lost, man. Leave me alone. I'm, I'm quite happy here. It's an act of love to go after that sheep that is about to be torn apart by wolves, isn't it? To discipline is a parental thing. That's what parents do in a family, or should I say, that's what parents should be doing in their families. They should be disciplining their children well. Proverbs 13 verse 24 says, He who spares the rod hates his son. What a sad reality when somebody comes, story I heard of a, a friend years ago who went to go and stay at somebody's house and that parent never disciplined his children. And when he left, he said, it's so sad to see how you hate your children. And the guy was like, what? I hate my children. And then he read this proverb, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. So discipline is a careful act of love towards somebody else. It's the act of bringing that sheep back into the fold so it doesn't get torn apart by wolves. And then not only is it a God-like thing to discipline, but it's a family-like thing to discipline and God's design for the family, but the church also disciplines those it loves. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 18:15 that we just read a moment ago, he said, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. So the shepherd, I mean the shepherd might go out and grab that sheep and pull him in. 
But God's design is for you to go to that sheep and speak to him so that he can see that you love him. And he'll say, man, this is the place I want to be. I want to be among people who love me. I want to be in the safe place. I don't want to go out there and get torn apart by wolves. So you win him over. It's a process. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a process of being winsome. A process of being kind and gentle and loving with a person until you bring them back, until they want to come back. It's not a matter of wrestling somebody down to the ground and twisting their arm behind them and demanding that they do what you tell them to do. It's, it's like God in the Old Testament says, why would you die? You know, for what purpose would you go wandering out there and get torn apart by wolves? What's the point? Where are you going, sheep? So discipline is a God-like thing. Discipline is a parental thing. Discipline is a church thing. But then ch- discipline is a hopeful rescue mission. All the way from the beginning of church discipline, all the way right to the end. And as Andre was saying a moment ago, in our church family meeting, we've come to the end of a journey with one person in our church. They're not here today. And you're going to hear about that. And even at that stage, at the end of the journey, church discipline is about restoration. It's about pulling somebody back. The process of putting somebody out of fellowship, the the very uh, effect of that on a person is meant to make them realize, I'm so isolated, I don't have this church family around me anymore, I'm alone, where am I, Who, who am I? And they're supposed to look back and see the church and say, these people really loved me, they pushed me all the way through the process of church discipline, they loved me enough to do that, and it should make that person want to come back. That's how God has designed this thing. And people do come back. Proverbs 24:11 says, Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. And that's what we're doing. That's what church discipline is. It's the sheep going into the jaws of the wolf. And we're pulling them on one side. And we're pulling them and pulling them. And we trust that God will bring that person back at the end of the process of church discipline when they've realized what danger they're in out there, outside of the church family. Galatians 6, 1, you know this text well, says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. It's a process of winning him over, restoring gently, being with somebody, understanding them, walking with them, going the journey, going the distance with them. So that's the first step. From the first step of um, of the church discipline process, all the way to the very end, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him. Why? In order that he may feel ashamed. So Paul is saying this whole process will put somebody in a place where suddenly they're isolated and alone and they realize, you know what, the experience of this is more terrible than I realized. This entire church, every single member of this church agrees that I'm going astray and I haven't listened to anybody. I've rejected their counsel. I've rejected their confrontations. What a sad reality, but that he, he may feel ashamed. And that's what brings a person back. By the grace of God, somebody who's out there in danger, God will bring them back through experiencing the sense of shame. First Timothy 1, 19 to 20 
Paul says to Timothy, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, faith and a good conscience, and have so shipwrecked their faith. It's the sheep going out into wolf territory by himself. He's destroying himself. He's destroying his life. And then he says, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So Paul still has hope for these guys. He says, I'm handing them over to Satan. They've been through the process where they have not complied with the church. They have not submitted to leadership in the church. They have not heard the rebukes of their, their peers in the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. And he said, I'm going to allow these people to go. I'm going to allow them to suffer. But you notice, he says, to be taught not to blaspheme. He's expecting that these people are going to learn something out there in the cold, learn something out there in the misery apart from the church, and they're going to come back and say, oh, forgive me for the way in which I behaved while I was here. What a beautiful thing. The expectation of people turning around, even after the last stage of church discipline. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5, Paul says, Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Paul has hope. Even handing somebody over to Satan is just his speech that he uses, another metaphor that he uses for church discipline. You know, excommunicating somebody, putting them in a place where they're no longer in association with the church. I want to point out that often, in my experience and the experience of those these apostles writing in scripture, is that often the danger to the sheep comes from false teachers. You know, people who say things that are so convincing, but they, they are poor exegetes of the Bible. They're not serious about seeing what the text is saying and explaining clearly so that when that person goes home, you can look at the text and you can see what the person's saying. That's what we hope to do here in, the, in this church. We want to show you the text of scripture we want to do proper study of the text, exercise all of the skills that God has given us through years and years of training. And we want you to say, it's obvious that what this guy is saying is what the text is saying. And if it's not obvious that what the text is saying is what I'm also saying, then you are not obligated to believe what I say. You walk away from me. So religious people come along and they begin to tell stories to sheep in the church. And they find somebody who's vulnerable. And they, they honor them on and on and on and they convince them and convince them and slowly but surely this person in the church begins to turn. And they begin to believe what the false teacher is teaching them because it sounds so reasonable but is not based on proper exegesis of the text. And they end up wandering away from the church and even opposing the church, becoming angry with the church for standing where they stand. In Acts chapter 20, 20 verse 29, remember Paul, when he leaves the church at Ephesus in that very tearful parting on the beach as they, you know, they're kneeling down and they're crying as they, as they part in company. Paul says to them with great sorrow, he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a fold where the sheep are living in safety with a shepherd, and you've got false teachers who are finding their way to the sheep and drawing them out into wolf territory so that they can be torn apart. In Galatians 1 verse 7b, you know, Andre has been preaching incessantly on Galatians over months 
And Paul says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion. Imagine this church. Now, what's right? What's right? We can't work out what's right anymore. Some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Verse 8 says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Very, very, very strong language. So, if we are preaching a beautiful gospel, there's one gospel, and if somebody comes into this church, a wolf comes into this church, and he grabs a sheep and starts dragging him out of the door, what are the rest of us going to do? Are we going to say, oh, well, that was a nice sheep. I like that one. Pity is gone. Or are we going to all jump up out of our chairs? Are we going to grab the other side of the sheep and start pulling that sheep back and start beating the wolf? Of course. Of course we're going to do that. And we, as um, elders and pastors in this church, we've had to beat a number of wolves in order to save our flock here. Over the history of this church, we've done some wolf beating. And it's, it's sad that... Um, there's so many sheep in the congregation who can't see the wolf coming. Oh, it's furry like me. It's got eyes like me. It's got ears like me. You know, he's, he's hanging out among the sheep. But then it takes the elders of the church to look at that, that wolf and say, uh-huh, I can see this is the wolf. And we take that wolf on. And how sad when, when people become upset about that, when, when the leaders of the church take on a wolf and they're like, but he was so nice. It was such a nice wolf. So friendly. Didn't bite anybody yet. You know, I think I didn't eat grass, but, um, I, you know, we could hear his tummy growling, but we, we can put up with that. So isn't it interesting how Paul puts this in such a framework that if a wolf does come in, if a false teacher does come in, Paul says, let that person be eternally condemned. And we in our church, we need to be bold about false teachers because they drag the sheep away and they tear them up outside there and leave them mangled. We don't want that. That's why we have church discipline. In fact, this is one of Satan's major strategies, isn't it? One of his major, I'm going to mention two of his major strategies today, but this is one of them. One of them is he wants to destroy the bride of Christ simply by false teaching. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. Verse 14 says, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then that his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. And what does he say? Their end will be what their actions deserve. Somebody who comes in, he preaches from the pulpit, he sits talking to people in little huddles and tries to convince them. We've had people in the church before who've sat with people in our church and said, you know what, you can't trust the elders in this church. These guys don't care for you. You know, They're not looking out for your soul. I mean, I don't know how many of you sitting here think that's reasonable, but when we heard about that, we thought, this is crazy, man. A person like this needs to go. We can't have a person. We work and work and work our lives away to build up and to develop a church like this, to develop relationships in this church and to care for you. And there's people who want to destroy it. They want to destroy the work you've begun. And that's why Paul says their end will be what their actions deserve, coming in and destroying the church. 
So that's the first thing. That's the first purpose for church discipline, and that's my longest point, so don't despair if you think I've got like another 10 points this long, okay? Um, restoration and reconciliation of a believer who's going astray. That's, that's the main thing I want us to understand. If there's church discipline, it's to pull people back. It's not to push people out. It's not to push out someone that irritates us. It's to pull people back so that they can be transformed more and more and more by the gospel. We're family. So the second purpose, the second purpose of church discipline is to keep sin from spreading to other people in the church. And we know that church discipline is not always successful, isn't it? Is it? People get confronted in the church over their sin and they don't want to listen. You remember that's what Jesus said. You know, if you go and show your brother your fault and if he listens to you, You've won him over. Listening to somebody to to maintain that relationship where I'm willing to hear what you've got to say and you listening to what I've got to say, that listening to you, that's a big part of church discipline. So if a person doesn't listen to you, what's going to happen? If that person doesn't listen to what you've got to say, doesn't listen to what you've got to say with witnesses, it doesn't listen to what the church has got to say, the elders of the church and then the congregation of the church, if he doesn't listen, then we've got to decide what is the second purpose, and that is to stop the influence of that person from corrupting the church. I don't know if you remember, I mean, how many of you here, but there was one guy in our church who, was, who we asked to leave, and he was causing division in the church, and he was teaching doctrine that was not according to the word of God, it was, it was terrible, and we asked him not to come back to the church. But he kept coming back to the church. So what did we do? We said to him that if we see him at the church, every time we see him, we're just going to say from the pulpit, everybody, this guy's here today. So this guy's been very divisive in the church. So please don't speak to him. And the guy, when we told him that, that we're going to make that announcement, that was the last time he ever came. He decided he's not willing to come under those conditions. And it's sad that you have to do that. There's a wolf who's so determined to be among the sheep that he's willing to keep coming even when the leadership of the church have said to him, please don't come back. So how do we stop the sin from spreading to others and seeing a slow decline in, and toward insensitivity and sin? How do we do that? We notice in Hebrews 12:15 that the writer to the Hebrews says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. How do we do that? We notice that there's little pockets of people in the church talking. Some people like the wolf, some people don't like the wolf, and then there's a clash between these people. What's the most obvious thing to do? Get rid of the wolf. Take the wolf out of the picture. And then we repair the damage that the wolf has done. 1 Corinthians 5, 2 and 6, Paul says... A man has his father's wife? He's rebuking the church in Corinth. There's this guy in the church who's sleeping with his father's wife like it's his wife. And Paul's like, what is going on here? And then he says in verse 2, and you are proud. Imagine a church where a man is living with his father's wife. And the church is like, yeah, we've got a guy living with his father's wife in our church. And Paul is, is shocked. And he says, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? 
It's a sorrowful thing if a person's living in sin and, and you know, he's not living according to the pattern that Paul left for them. Should you not rather have been filled with grief and put out of fellowship the man who did this? Verse 6 says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through a whole batch of dough? You've got one man sleeping with his father's wife in the church. The next person thinks, ah, it's all right. We can do that too. You know, maybe I'll sleep with this person or that person and getting all sorts of arrangements going. And Paul is pointing out that you put a little bit of yeast in, in some dough and you begin to, to knead that dough and the yeast just spreads everywhere. It affects the whole thing. So get rid of the wolf. We need to get rid of the wolf. We need to deal with the situation. If this wolf cannot be brought back, we need to remove this wolf from our church. Galatians 2.11 and 13, when Peter came to Antioch, remember Paul said, back to Galatians, Paul opposes Peter. Paul stands in front of Peter and says to him, Peter, you are clearly in the wrong. Verse 13 says, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas was the one, remember, who first called Paul into his missionary ministry in Antioch. Remember that, he pulls him in and everybody else was a bit scared of Paul, you know, because he used to be Saul and he was killing Christians. And Barnabas, he's an encourager, he's a guy who has a big heart, he loves Paul and he pulls him in and we see Paul's ministry just exploding to thousands of Christians and then from Antioch going out on his missionary journeys. But even that guy Barnabas, when Peter begins to listen to the false teaching of those Jews, even Barnabas is led astray. He's saying that it is very easy for false doctrine to spread in a church. And that's why we practice church discipline. We don't, it's an act of love to every member of the church if we go through a process of church discipline because we don't want to see you destroyed. In fact, even elders are to be publicly rebuked when they sin. First Timothy 5.20 says those who sin, that's elders, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. But so others will look and say, oh no, I don't want to be the next person on the stage being publicly rebuked. And we don't rebuke people, you know, because this is just an instruction about elders. We don't rebuke individuals in public in this church. It's not called for biblically. But we do make an announcement about a person as the church discipline process requires. So church discipline reminds us, it reminds a church that we are serious about keeping people from being destroyed by sinful lives. If, if I look at you from the pulpit and I'm willing to engage in the process of church discipline, you can look at me now and say, this guy loves me. Now, this pastor loves me because he's willing to go into a process of church discipline. Even if you don't like me after that, it's an act of love toward you that I'm willing to go after a wolf in order to protect you from the lies that that wolf is teaching Galatians 4, 15a and 19, remember what Paul said, what has happened to all your joy? This is a gospel-believing church, and suddenly they've lost their joy. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. you know, the false teachers that come in, 
and burdened these people with a legalistic burden. And they, they got into this mode where they had to perform and perform and perform. Otherwise, God wasn't pleased with them. And Paul is like, what is this? What is, why are you walking around with gloomy faces? And at the heart of that was that their, their concept of the gospel had been changed by false teachers. It messed up their whole lives. And what I want is I want to see you filled with joy that comes from the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I don't want to see wolves come in here breathing into your ears and talking garbage about the gospel, changing the gospel, making Jesus less glorious in your mind and in your heart. So this is another of major, Satan's major strategies. You know, when he comes into the church, he wants you to be people in the church who are drifting and drifting and drifting towards sinful living and seeing conflict developing between believers over little issues. I don't like the way you eat. I don't like that shirt you're wearing. You know, I don't like the way you write. I don't like the way you drive your car. You know, I don't like the way you WhatsApp. You know, you should say this or that rather than this and that. It's bizarre. Some people have messaged me and told me, you know, instead of saying that, you should have said this. And I'm like... Okay, I'll say that next time, but does it really matter? And all Satan wants to do, he wants to get you fighting with each other. He wants you to not have an ongoing argument with somebody that's never dealt with. Because then he's won. He's outwitted the church. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11 about that man who was sleeping with his father's wife. Put him out. And then later on, after that letter... <clears throat> You know that they did discipline that guy. And Paul writes another letter and he, and he says, it's, it's a good thing that you did that because otherwise, if they'd been fighting in the church about that, Satan would have outwitted us. He would have, he would have won the battle. But because they exercised church discipline, they won the battle against Satan. And that's what we want to do. When we see a wolf coming in here to tear a sheep apart, Satan is trying to destroy the sheep by causing people to argue and argue and have these long-lasting feuds, maybe between families, between brothers, sisters, fathers, you know, mothers, sons, daughters, just whoever it is, these ongoing arguments where there's no joy, there's no peace, because you've lost sight of the gospel. Okay, so that was the second purpose of church discipline. The first is reconciliation, to bring the sheep back who's straying out into wolf territory. The second purpose is to stop sin from spreading inside of the church. We need to get rid of the wolf so that we can refocus our eyes on the gospel and it must go all the way down to relationship level where we can live in harmony with each other, stop attacking each other over stupid little things and begin to live gospel-centered lives, harmony that comes from a knowledge of the gospel. And then the third purpose of church discipline is to protect the purity of the church and the honor of Christ. So all Christians obviously sin. I mean, we, none of us is without sin. That's obviously what John says in 1 John 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is, is not in us. You sin. I sin. Everybody sins in this church. But the point is that a gospel-centered life makes you the kind of person who deals with your sin on a continual basis. If I sin against somebody, that's exactly what we're talking about, the first step of church discipline. If I sin against somebody, I go to that person and I say, brother or sister, I confess that I sinned against you in this way. Please will you forgive me? And it's dealt with. That's a transaction that deals with sin in the church. It's wonderful. 
And what Wayne Grudem says is that if more believers in the church were dealing with their sin on that level, on the first level where we come to each other, we're sensitive about the way we've sinned against each other, and I go and confess and I receive that person's forgiveness, then we would never have to get to the end of church discipline. We'd never see the end phase of church discipline because these things get dealt with quickly. If I believe somebody sinned against me, if they've insulted me, for example... And they don't seem to be aware of it. I go. If I sin against you, I'm aware of it. I go to you. If I'm aware somebody has sinned against me and they don't seem to be aware, I go because I know about it. Remember, I've used this phrase before that I got from somebody else. The one with the sore toes goes because he's the one who knows. Crazy little thing, but it helps you to know if your toes are sore, if you're conscious of the sin, doesn't matter if you committed the sin against somebody or if somebody committed the sin against you, you've, you're the one with the sore toes. So you're like, this is hurting me. I must go to that person regardless of whose fault it was. Every member of the church has that responsibility. So how do I know when I should confront somebody of sin? I know I've spoken about this before. But there's three key issues that need to be present. If, some, if I don't like somebody's shirt, for example, does it match up to these criteria? Should I confront them? If I don't like their shoes or the way they walk or the way they talk or the way they do their hair or the way they drive their car or the way they make, type text messages, does it fit through the filter that makes me say, I have to confront this person? And the question is this, is the sin continual? Is this person doing this thing continually? Is it a sin that is, is doing over and over and over? It's like a pattern in this person's life. Then you've got to say to yourself, maybe I should confront this person. Secondly, is the sin obvious to others, especially to unbelievers? Is this pushing other people and saying, ah, oh, you know, if that's the kind of Christian that this church produces, then I don't want to go to that church. Is it obvious to other people? And then thirdly, is the sin leading other people into sin? If those three things are present, if this is a habitual sin, if this sin is um, obvious to other people and even to unbelievers, and it's bringing disgrace on Christ, and if this thing, um, yeah, if it's leading other people into sin, then this sin is bringing disgrace on Christ, the head of the church. And it's even possible, as Paul said about the Jews, He said in Romans 2 verse 24, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Imagine how sad it is to be a church or a member of a church and people outside are are cursing God because of the way that you live. Like, hey, this person can't even be reconciled to this other person they're arguing with. You know, I don't want to go to a church like that. Well, let's say, uh, like I'm a biblical counselor, so I can use this example. You know, what if a biblical counselor has got a problem with somebody else in their life and they can't fix it? Who's going to come to me for counsel if I can't even sort out my own issues? It's like Paul says, you know, for a man to be an elder, he needs to manage his family well. You know, you're not going to look at my family and say, yeah, your kids are completely out of control. That's a good elder to have in our church. No, you want to look at my kids and you want to see that they, you know, they, they live ordered, principled, godly lives. And you say, yeah, well, if this guy can manage his family, he should be an elder in the church. He's qualified to be an elder in the church. So, sadly, God's name can be blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us. 
And that's why we do church discipline, because we don't want that to happen. We don't want Christ's name to be honored because of our sinful living. In fact, not only in the eyes of other people, unbelievers, you know, believers and unbelievers, but also the, the heavenly beings, all of the beings in the spiritual realms. Paul says in Ephesians 3.10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And part of this is church discipline, seeing how the body manages itself in order to honor Christ. Christ's honor is paramount in our process of church discipline. And Paul is so distressed about sin in the church of Corinth. And he's coming to us and he's speaking to us and he's pointing out it's an absolutely dreadful thing when sin just goes on and on and on in the church and nobody ever does anything about it. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 2 and 6 verse 5, we already read this a moment ago. He says, and you are proud about this one particular sin. He says, you should rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this. I say this to shame you. How sad when Paul comes and he says to a church, I'm saying this to shame you. You haven't dealt with the sin. You haven't dealt with these issues in the church. And then he says, is it possible... That there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. And he goes on to say, you can, even, you can even appoint people who are of no account in the church, just ordinary people, to sit with other people and help them sort out problems. That's how serious it gets. If none of the leaders can do this, if the leaders are incompetent, anybody in the church can go and sit with somebody who's struggling with somebody else and say, come, can we work this thing out? Please, man, brother, please, sister, can't we sort this, this, this fight out? And Paul is saying it's shameful when that doesn't happen in a church, when that's not the culture in a church. All Christians should be eager to maintain purity and unity in the church because Christ's name is at stake. Ephesians 4, 1, 2, 3, Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. You notice there from Galatians 5, the same language. You know, humility, gentleness, be patient, bearing with one another in love. If I don't like your shirt, I'm not going to tell you. If I like your shirt, I'll tell you, hey, great shirt. But if I don't like your shirt, I'm never going to tell you. Because it doesn't matter. Who cares what I like and what I don't like? It is the honor of Christ that matters. So I'm going to be a person who's humble and gentle and patient and I'm going to bear with you in love, even if I'm so sinful that something you do irritates me. It doesn't matter. On the big scheme, it doesn't matter what shoes you're wearing. It doesn't matter how you walk or how you talk or what your hair looks like or you know, how you drive or, or how you text or whatever it is. That stuff doesn't matter. Christ's honor matters. And that's why he's saying, Paul, as a prisoner, I'm urging you, to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another, walking with a load upon you, saying, I refuse to confront this person for something that doesn't matter. It's not a sin. It doesn't, that requires all of the, it doesn't meet all of the requirements of a sin that I must confront for. It's not a thing that, a sin that is going on and on and on. It's not a sin that is bringing disgrace on the name of Christ. It's not a sin that... Um, what was the other requirement? It's not a sin that uh, is leading other people into sin. It's not. It doesn't matter. 
My shirt is not leading people into sin. Don't talk about it. In fact, sometimes I've got to get pretty bold with some people and say, you know what, if you think of something that you want to say to somebody and you want to complain and it doesn't meet these, these, these criteria, then shut up. Just sit there and say, no, I won't do it. Give yourself a bit of nothetic counsel, okay? Sit, look in the mirror and say, don't do it. <laughs> you know, don't speak to this person about their clothes. Don't speak to this person about their hat or their shades or whatever. It doesn't matter. But church discipline really matters. And then we, can, we do this. We're eager to do this because God is eager to do this. 1 Corinthians 11.27 Therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. God's judgment follows that if I eat or drink in an unworthy manner. And what is that eating and un- drinking in an unworthy manner? We've spoken about this before. It's not giving a hoot about your brothers and sisters in the church. It's not caring about them. You know, you notice then that whole section, you've got the communion, you've got some people coming, drinking all the wine and getting drunk. It's like, I don't care that other people are coming, I just want to drink it all. And you've got other people coming, eating all the food and they're getting fat, and then the rest of the church comes and there's no food for anybody else. You can see, you can see the whole setting. God judges a person who sits and eats and drinks communion while he doesn't give a hoot about the body of Christ, all the other people for whom Christ died. Not, not worried about sorting out fights between us. Not worried about all the sins I'm committing against people by confronting them for nothing. For things that don't match the criteria. And then we can ask ourselves, you know, after we've looked at the three purposes for church discipline, what types of sins were normally disciplined in the New Testament? For what sins were people disciplined? You might be saying, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm committing a sin for which this church should discipline me. I hope nobody notices. But the variety of sins that people in the New Testament committed sins, you know, variety of sins people in the New Testament committed for which they were disciplined is very wide. It's a very wide list of sins. The first of them was divisiveness. The other one was incest. You remember we were talking about First Corinthians where the man had his father's wife. We had sins of laziness and refusing to work. We had people disobeying what Paul writes. We had blasphemy and we have teaching heretical doctrine. Like Paul spoke about. Let that person be eternally condemned if he comes and he teaches you a gospel other than what Paul taught. But one thing that we can notice is that not only was there a wide variety of sins, but there's also a number of commonalities in these texts. I don't know where the words went, but stuff happens, you know. Um, some of the commonalities are that these sins that people were disciplined for were publicly known. People knew that these people were committing these sins. Secondly, those sins, all of those sins that they were disciplined for were continuing over a period of time. It was a habitual thing. And then the third commonality is that those sins were all destructive to the person committing those sins and to other people in the church. Damaging, ruining people's lives. No wonder we practice church discipline because we don't want that, do we? We don't want you destroyed. So those are the types of sins, a whole variety of sins. But ultimately, when you look at what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, he puts his whole focus on if the person, if your brother listens to you, 
If he hears what you say, then you've won your brother over. So ultimately, church discipline ends up, at the end of church discipline, as not ultimately about the sin that you committed, because that sin is particularly bad. It's about the fact that you were sinning in some way, and somebody came to you and says, please, man, you know, this is, this is a continual thing. This is, you know, leading other people into sin. This is bringing disgrace on the name of the Lord Jesus. Please, man, I'm, I'm urging you to work on this thing, you know, to stop, to turn around. You know, I can help you. I can walk with you. And if that person says to you, I'm not interested, you know, don't, don't come tell me about my sin. Look at you. Look at the way you're living. And then you go to somebody else and you bring them along. You know, the point is that the end of church discipline, it's about you not listening. If you come to the point where you're so stubborn and you will not hear what the leaders of the church even are saying to you and the whole church is a body, that person must be put out of fellowship because they, they can't hear anything the church is saying anymore. What a sad position to be in. So how do we do it? This is the, the final point really. How, does church, how should we go about church discipline in this church? The first thing is, and this, I'm hoping that you can see in our church that this is something we've been very serious about, is that the knowledge of the sin must be kept to the smallest possible group. The knowledge of the sin must be kept to the smallest possible group. That's, that fits in the pattern of what Jesus was saying in Matthew 18, doesn't it? You know, just between the two of you. If your brother sins against you, you know, you go to him, you show him his fault just between the two of you. You start, you, you reduce this to the smallest possible group. And that's why, as you've noticed in our church, sometimes when we come up, the leaders of the church come up and we say, sadly, this is a church discipline moment, and the following person has been in the process of church discipline for two years, let's say. And everyone's shocked. They're like, what? This person? No ways, man. No chance that this person can be on a church discipline. Why does that happen? Because we haven't been gossiping about that person. I would take that as a good sign in this church. If, if when this thing is told to the church, if it comes as a shock to you, if it comes to you for the first time, you say, praise God, I'm in a church where people are not gossiping about church discipline cases before the time. There does come a time to mention it to the church, and we're going to mention some people to the church today, after this service, but you haven't heard the bulk of you, if you haven't been involved, you haven't heard from any of the leaders of this church's lips what's going on. And I take that as a good thing. When you're shocked today, when you hear what's going on, you must say, thank you, God, that this church is keeping the information about this case to the smallest possible group. We're doing what God requires us to do. And that should make you feel confident that if something happens to you, if you're caught in a sin, it's gonna go, we're going to plead with you right to the very end before we announce it to the church. And we're not going to gossip about you. That's a good thing. Disciplinary measures should increase in strength until a resolution is reached. And you know that, as I was saying a moment ago, if you're aware of somebody who sinned against you, according to Matthew 18:15, you go to that person. If you're aware that you have sinned against somebody, according to Matthew 5:23, you go to that person. The responsibility is always on you, so there's never a time when you have to wait for somebody to come to you. Oh no, I can't be reconciled because they haven't come to me. They're in the wrong. They must come to me and they must apologize. You're never in that situation in a biblical, a biblical um, 
disciplined situation. You always have the responsibility, if you're aware, to go to that person. You must confront them with love. When you go to that person, aware of your own weakness and your own attitude, it's so easy to, dis- to confront somebody with an aggressive attitude. You know, I'm sick of the way you, you, know, you dress in this place. I'm sick of the way you wear your hats. I'm sick of the way you text. You know, whatever it is, some irritation, you're likely to go to that person because you're sick and tired of this. I'm going to give this person a piece of my mind. And that's not the way to confront. To confront is what Paul was saying. You should have been filled with grief. It should be sad. You should say, you know, it doesn't matter what impact this has had on me. This person is a sheep that's wandering out into a dangerous place, and I need to pull them back. A wolf has got this sheep. I want to pull the sheep back. We should be filled with grief. We should confront with love, according to Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. We should confront with gentleness. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And that restoration, that word restore in the Greek, is actually quite a beautiful word. I mention this because it's a particularly beautiful word. It's the the word that um, fishermen would use when they'd been out, for example, fishing all night, and they'd caught fish and their net had got torn. And they would pull their net into the boats, they would take it on shore, and in the morning when the sun came up, all the fishermen would sit around on the rocks by the edge of the sea, and they would tie all the little broken ends of their net together so their net could work again. And that's what it is. That's what you're doing. You're sitting with somebody. You go and restore somebody. You see this person's net is broken. Now they've fallen into sin in this place, and you go and sit with them, and you help them to sew their net together again so it can work, so they can function. You confront with humility. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Ephesians 4, 2, Be completely humble. I mean, (laughs) completely humble. That's quite a call for us. And gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Also confront tentatively. Luke 17, 3 is about not going to somebody and saying, You sinned. It's about, hey, man, I have this information about you. You know, I saw this, I heard this. You know, if this is correct, if my information is correct, if the way I've understood this is correct, then it seems you might be in sin. And you give that person an opportunity to respond and you say, oh, yeah, I can understand. I see that, you know, I, I had the wrong thing. You know, but that person loves you because you cared to confront them, but you didn't go there to bash them. Tentatively. Confront, ready to forgive. That's what Jesus says. If he responds by repenting, if he responds by repenting when you confront him, you forgive him generously, wholeheartedly. He doesn't become a second-rate citizen in the church. Remember forgiveness. When he expresses his repentance with words, the Bible never allows you a point where somebody says, "Yes, I repent of that. Yeah, forgive me for that." It doesn't allow you to withhold forgiveness from that person until you see the fruit of forgiveness, the fruit of repentance. It doesn't allow you to say, "Let's just see how that goes. Let's see if you improve in this, and then I'll tell you if I forgive you or not." Your forgiveness is not based on a person's fruit of repentance. Your forgiveness is based on when the person says, "Yes, please forgive me." You say, "Yes, I'll forgive you." Boom, finished. Then you see if they're genuine about their repentance or not. That's the way this reconciliation works. When you forgive somebody, you make them a promise. You remember? I'm not going to remind myself of this. I'm not going to sit brooding over this. I'm not going to stay awake at night thinking about what this person said and how they said it and what I'm going to say back to them. You, you say to yourself, I'm not going to think about this. 
I promised I will not bring this up in my own heart. I promise I will not bring it up to you. I promise I will not bring it up in front of other people's faces. That's the promise. And you keep that promise. And you confront exhaustively. You bring it to that person one-on-one, according to Matthew 18. You bring it to one or two other witnesses. You know, if that person doesn't listen, if they see your relationship as so cheap that they are not even willing to listen to you, you bring two, one or two other people along with you, as Jesus said in Matthew 18. And the point of that is so that other people can see the, the passion with which this person is rejecting your rebuke. So other people can look and say, wow, I wouldn't have believed that if I hadn't seen it myself. This person is so nice. You know, they come across as so friendly. You know, it's like a faithful member of the church. But here is something that I've never seen in this person before. And that's the point. It's for you to take two, one or two witnesses with you and, you and you witness that. So that those two people, if it has to escalate to the church, coming to the elders of the church and they say, this person, you know, this is what we did. We confronted this person. They wouldn't listen. We took two or three, you know, one or two other people with. They wouldn't listen. And now we're bringing it to the elders of the church. You go and speak to them. And we speak to them and we say, yo, this person, we never seen this before. You know, in this person, it's a surprise to us, but this person's developed a very hard heart. They will not listen. And that's the sad thing. It's, a, it's an inability to listen at that stage. So we confront exhaustively, one-on-one, bringing one or two other witnesses, bring it to the church, first to the leadership of the church, and then when the leadership of the church has witnessed this, we tell it to the church, and we send the whole church after that person who's being dragged out of the door by a, by a wolf. And then there are two possible outcomes. This is what I finish with. There's two possible outcomes. One, what a wonderful, wonderful moment. When you, your brother sinned against you, or if you know you've sinned against your brother or your sister, and you go to them, and you speak to them gently and humbly, and you know it's a sin that meets the requirements. It's not some stupid little personal preference. It's a real sin that meets the requirements. You go speak to them, and they look at you, and they... And they're amazed that you had the courage to come and confront them. Imagine they say to you, wow, thank you so much for pointing that. I didn't even see that. You know, I was so unaware of that sin or I was trying to pretend it didn't exist. And what a wonderful thing when that person repents, you know, and two of you can sit there and sometimes you sit in tears and you cry together before God and you reconcile as friends, you deal with the sin and you move on from there. That's generous, generous, wonderful, beautiful restoration. That's what Paul said about that man who had his father's wife. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to, ref- to affirm your, reaffirm your love for him. Imagine a person who sinned like that. He's been living a gross sexual life and then... He gets confronted. He turns around. His whole life turns around. He puts away that lifestyle and he comes back to the church and they reaffirm him. They say, I don't want you to lose heart. I want to comfort you. I want you to be forgiven and restored. I don't want you to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. What a wonderful thing that is that church families can do. But sadly, not every church discipline case ends up in glorious, wonderful, beautiful reconciliation. Sometimes it ends up in the person rejecting the church very, very strongly. And you can be quite sure if the elders of this church bring something, somebody in front of this church 
It's reached the stage where repeatedly this person will not listen to what we have to say. To, to multiple elders of the church. And now it's your turn today. It's your turn to speak to those people and say, hey, what's happening? We just heard about this thing today. We can't believe it, you know. And you urge them to turn back from this course of action. You're going to hear in a moment. Some people will refuse to listen to you. So you tell it to the church. And if they refuse to even listen to the church, what Jesus said is that you treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector, like any unbeliever outside of the church. You try to reach them with the gospel. You exercise caution with the things that they've been teaching, if it's wrong doctrine, and you make sure that they don't infect the rest of the church, but you treat them as a person who is desperately in need of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you try to win them over if you have a relationship with them. You be cautious with them if they've been teaching false doctrine. At least you know about that. You forewarned. And just this last little statement, as we finish just now, again I tell you, verse 19 of Matthew 18, I tell you that if two of, two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. What is he speaking about? He's speaking about people in the church who have witnessed somebody falling into a life of sin where they absolutely refuse to receive a confrontation and to come back. If they keep going like that, if two or three of you maybe elders of the church in this case, or any, any members of the church, where you've gone through this whole process faithfully, you've come to the point where God is saying, yes, I agree with your conclusion. So if we faithfully practice the process of church discipline, and we're sitting as elders of the church like we have, and we say we're all in agreement that this is clearly a case where we, we have no confidence that this person is truly born again, we've come to the conclusion, the Greek structure suggests We've come to the conclusion that God has already come to. And all we're doing is confirming what God has already concluded. So when we send somebody out of the church, we know that we have the authority of God in this, if we've practiced church discipline in a principled way, in a biblical way. So in conclusion, the Bible teaches that church discipline has three purposes. The first is to restore and reconcile believers who are falling into sin. The second is to keep sin from spreading to others in the church. The third is to protect the purity of the church and the honor of Christ, which are all worthy motivations. These purposes make us do church discipline. The Bible also gives us examples of sins that were disciplined in the New Testament. These sins have three commonalities. They were publicly known, they continue over a period of time, and they are destructive to the believer and other believers. The Bible also gives us a clear process for church discipline. Christians should restrict the information about the sin to the smallest group, apply measures in increasing strength, either if someone has sinned against you or if um, you have been sinned against by someone else. Christians should comfort lovingly, gently, humbly, tentatively, and ready to forgive and exhaustively. The two, position, the two possible outcomes of this process are either generous restoration or being removed from fellowship as an unbeliever. Church discipline is a very serious process because if a church faithfully follows this process, God, agree, God agrees with the outcome. It's a very serious thing to go through church discipline and be unwilling to hear what the church is saying. 
It's the ultimate form of folly, isn't it? An entire church is saying to you, come back, come back. And you're saying, no, I'm, I'm safe, I'm okay. Serious thing. Lord, thank you for this, these few moments that we've had to speak about the framework that you've given us for church discipline. Lord, you know how it grieves our hearts in a church where our primary purpose in this church, you know, one of the, the main activities we involve ourselves in is building relationships. We build relationships with one another and we build relationships that will last. We build relationships that are joyful and are based on the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, it's because we are relationship-based, because we, we pour ourselves into each other in a loving way. We live our lives for each other. It's because of that that church discipline comes upon us with such force. It's so distressing. It's, it's a terrible, terrible thing that we have to go through. But thank you, Lord, that you've given us this mechanism so that we can use this mechanism to see believers reconciled. We can use this mechanism to stop sin from spreading to other people. And we can use this mechanism because you've given us instructions, uh, clear instructions on how it is to be exercised. And we pray that you would help us in this church, Lord, to be faithful in this regard. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us beautiful harmony in the gospel because this church can see that we love each other by exercising church discipline. We just pray these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen.